What's up, Redemption? How you doing? John Hendricks here, back with a brand new episode of the Threshing Floor Podcast. On this week's episode, we're going to have Jared on. I promised you guys three weeks ago, and it's been a little while in the making because, you know, life. But we do have Jared on, and we're going to be talking to him about his expansive background in trading card games, his transition to Redemption, and some of the ideas he has to kind of help with the state of the game. So without further ado, we'll get right into it. Thanks for being here. All right, guys, thank you for joining for a new episode of the Threshing Floor Podcast. We're only uh, two weeks, you know, late or three weeks late for this episode, but it's better late than never. At least we are here. We are back and we've got, as promised, we've got Jared joining us. So how you doing, Jared? Hi, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Obviously, we kind of hinted that we would be talking to you kind of about um, some of the, the things that you put out in the community about ways to potentially create a healthier game balance between who goes first and whatnot. So that's kind of what the main topic of conversation will be. But we'll get into that in a little bit. First, I'd like to go over some recent news. And I guess part of the recent news, I guess I should offer an explanation for the fact that we haven't had an episode in two weeks. Um I did have a ton of people reach out and check on me and make sure that things were good. And things are good, but it's nice to know that people care in the community and whatnot and that you are actually, you know, excited about the podcast and wanting new episodes. So that's all good to know. Mostly what happened was, you know, life just kind of gave me a bit of a gut punch. Our, let's see, the uh, torsion spring, I believe is what it's called, in the garage for our garage garage door broke garage doors messed up we had a limb fall through the house a while back uh, through the roof um, on an exterior piece of the roof and we've been going with through the ring with insurance trying to get them to come out and give us a you know a quote on repair and whatnot and what they would pay for and we finally got a meeting arranged with someone from insurance so had to take care of that um my car that I recently purchased, which is probably the biggest thing, not to uh, not to sound very superficial here, but so I bought the car that I really wanted back in high school. Um, it was a 2007 Cobalt SS, and in high school I was a poor teenager from a broke family, had no chance to pay for it. Fast forward to now, after uh, my recent wreck that I talked about on the podcast back in May, I wanted to get something that I didn't have a payment on and was good on gas. So I went and found one of those cars that only had 24,000 miles. So 24,000 miles for a car from 2007, almost too good to be true. And then I thought it was because it broke down on me. Oh no. (laughs) So, um, turns out after checking a few things, just the engine computer went out. I replaced that. It cost 150 bucks and it's back running. But that did have me pretty much down in the dumps. Uh, emotion, like I was in my emotions over that. So that weighing on me while trying to take care of all the other stuff was kind of just I didn't have I didn't have the zeal for podcasting. Throwing that in uh, on top of everything. Also on the work front, I don't know how much I've talked about what I actually do, but it is I'm a manager for a 
location within our company that is a third-party distributor for uh, telecommunications equipment. Primarily, we work for HughesNet. Uh, basically, they contract us to get large bulk shipments and break them down and ship them to their installation companies. That's our primary thing. Now we're picking up business from Verizon Wireless, which is um, a pretty pretty significant thing. We're picking up business from another branch of HughesNet that does primarily next day air, like air freight. You can go to UPS Ground and do a next day air package and get a label for that. You know what that is. Well, they also do air freight where they take pallets and actually move them on planes and stuff. And so we're getting into that. HughesNet issued a 90-day termination notice for the contract for that side of their business that they to the company that was currently doing it. So in 90 days, we're going to be picking up that. And the equipment that we're going to be getting in is 750 pallets or 28 full truckloads of 53-foot freight trucks and having next day air business that we're adding to what we're doing. So work is just exploded. Yeah. Um, so this is a very long-winded, selfish introduction to the podcast to, to just try to give everyone an idea of what's been going on in my world. So that's all of that combined is why I haven't made a podcast in the last two weeks. So that said, hopefully no more breaks and we are here moving forward. So got that off the chest. I think everybody just appreciates being able to have a podcast to be able to listen to um, and have kind of, it's almost like pseudo communication uh, because I listen to the podcast while I'm at work. So it's nice to have something. It's almost like chatting about redemption um, in the interim because I don't, I don't really have locals to go to all the time. Uh, closest that I have to San Antonio an hour away, but they only host once a, once a month. So, yeah, I think also the fact that I haven't made a podcast in the last two weeks, even though it's only been, you know, like the two weeks and coming into the third week, I feel so disconnected from the community now, like just missing that amount of time because of how plugged in I was to, to make the podcast weekly. Two weeks away is like, I mean, it it feels like a lifetime almost when you come in and the uh, to-do list on like videos to watch and things to get caught up on is so expansive. So definitely want to thank people for continuing to make content uh, when I was not able to do so. It's nice to know that when you lose one source of content, there's something else happening, which is kind of nice that the community has become a little bit more robust in content creation, that that's kind of layered up like that. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of the content that has come out recently, um, we'll just go over some recent news here. Land of Redemption put out two articles. The most recent one of those was Zion Scion by Chad France. This is a revisit to his Turbo Impartial Judgment list. Once Upon a Time in Zion. And so he's got an article about that. And there's been some discussion on the boards, apparently, or I'm sorry, on Discord. Apparently he was doing something that he wasn't aware was not actually a legal play. So there's been an edit to that to acknowledge that. 
And then the other one is a really cool article that I read, but I did not watch the video and I still have not watched the video. And I, it, it, it hurts me because it's about my boy, Noah, um, <laughs> Rob Smith using Noah, the righteous to come in and shuffle dominance, like the resurrection. That's, that's pretty cool. Did you happen to watch that video, Jared? I did not, but I did experience the deck firsthand. Oh, nice. Is it what dreams are made of? It's everything you'd want in your life and more. Uh, if you like torture, at least. But nice. think, uh, think of Finadab, because of Finadab's ability to be able to recur things like um, Marriage Covenant, except it's a dominant, so you can't respond. <laughs> nice. That's, that's really cool that Rob came uh, came up with that idea. I can't wait to watch the video. So I guess, and also, we'll kind of go out of order here. Tyler Talks has done a couple of videos. There's three videos that I have not touched on talking about them here on the podcast. And one of those is a video where he, just based on the title, again, have not watched these videos because I'm all of life that I just mentioned earlier. But He's got a video where Rob talks about it, but he's making a video is kind of like what he titled it. And I'm guessing he's using the Noah shuffle play in a deck. Um, so that's a that's a good follow up video that I, I plan on watching that hopefully gives me ideas on how to use that myself. Um, he also has Empty Tomb with Thieves, which is just all out control, trying to control the the opponent. And then there's a defensive heavy video which i'm super stoked about the defensive heavy like i feel like a play style that i've never done that intrigues me a lot is doing defensive heavy because it seems like it would change almost the the entire way you interact with the opponent have you ever played defensive heavy i i tested it a little bit um i was really enjoying two witnesses i think i think they're that's a great rescue hero especially in a d heavy deck yeah um but I think most most of the ideas that I have with D heavy, um, Jaden actually took and played, and so I just watched his video of, and I listened to what he his experiences with it. So, but it is a it is an archetype that I like. Yeah, I think it's interesting just because it's counter to so many so many other strategies that you see, like the super aggressive um, rescue approaches, trying to get as many rescues as you can, even inside of three turns, you know, like people trying to abuse disciples of the lamb now and, and things like that and eternal covenant. So kind of throw that out there. And then the cross kind of gives it a little bit of, you know, like an, an added punch of viability there. If you can get to the, the end of the opponent's deck. So that's pretty cool. Our friend, speaking of Jaden, he has videos chronicling the, first and second rounds of the current Grand Prix, which is the Grand Prix number five. And the first round, I believe he played LOJ Games. And then I forget who he played for the second round. Um, it was me. Oh, it was just, okay. One. Yeah. There you go. And then, so those those videos are both out on his channel on YouTube. So you got three videos potentially from Tyler in the, the past two weeks. You know, if you haven't watched those, you've got three videos there. You've got two videos from Redemption with Jaden. And then you've got two articles from Land of Redemption. Um, I will make a break here to go to YouTube because I almost forgot about our friend Rob M. 
I don't know what yeah. he's put out. I didn't even check for him. He I'm might sorry, have Rob. one or two gameplay. Me. So Rob from two weeks ago, he's got Mega Mandolin versus Cricket Demons. It looks like that's a gameplay video there. And then Resurrection Revealer. Um he's got Zoom Discord gameplay. Obviously, um I think that's the video with Rob where Rob's using the, the deck that uses the Noah Shuffle. I forgot that that was actually done on Rob M's channel. And then he's got Redemption Basics deck building GOC only that came out six days ago with some tips for building GOC only decks as GOC only format is now an option for locals and districts. Yeah, he's got a ton of, he actually has a bunch of videos out now. Yeah. It's four from Rob. So that's on top of the ones that we have from the other creators is seven videos. Man, I'm telling you, robust creation for redemption <laughs> content. Um, we'll go ahead and just do a reminder since we mentioned Lackey Grand Prix, Grand Prix five is ongoing. So make sure you're getting your games in there. By the time that this comes out, we should be on week four pairings because week three will be due. I guess they're due this evening. We're recording Sunday evening. And then you also have zoom discord invitational series six. And that is currently being led by Mr. Rob Smith. So Let's see if he can hold on with his with his deck that he's come out with. In addition to those, we also have a couple of big in-person tournaments that are not going to be sanctioned. And those are the Mr. Classic, which is happening early 2023. And that's going to be in Knoxville, Tennessee at Chris Fashman's church, Meridian Baptist Church. And it's going to be hosted by Jay and Jeremy Chambers. And at some point, we're going to get some more details. I know that Jay had reached out to me and asked about putting out some more details or, or whatnot. And I just, I haven't been able to circle back with him. And so we'll find out more information about that. And maybe maybe next week, we'll have a, a few more details about that. I know that the community vote in person, um, you know, where they're supposed to, we're supposed to be doing community vote to select one person. I know that's going to be happening and then at some point we're going to be doing an unofficial tournament like a Glacky Grand Prix that will also provide a um, person involved in the Mr. Classic tournament, the eight-man tournament. So you have that to look forward to. Also coming up November 5th, so much more closer in time frame, November 5th at Hope Christian Fellowship Church in Rochester, New York, is Scroll Around the Block, which is going to be hosted by the aforementioned Rob M. from Rob M. Studios. And this is going to be a kind of a testing ground for a classic environment where they're using scroll-only cards. So not just classic to where you can use anything um, from the card pool, including the new cards. This is no new cards, so only old format cards with the scroll box and then they're going to be testing out block format and other various play styles there in an unofficial capacity. So really interested to see some of the findings on the alternative game gameplay options there. Yeah, it'll be fun. I think scroll only is, um, or I, I like, I just like to call it scrolls is a fun alternative way to play the game. It's not really something that I think you or I are familiar with as a, as a, as a format and it kind of harkens back to, 
um maybe some days of old for some people yeah. definitely has a feeling of that so the only thing about that that is slightly disappointing is when jay chambers hits me with the truth that dude it's really cool but then eventually someone's going to find out the best deck in that format and because you're not adding new cards to that it just kind of stays stagnant and then you have the option of like rotating ban lists so that a deck is viable, but then it's not. And it, you know, it rotates if somebody wanted to keep that going, obviously, you know, with the community being involved in and not being an official, you know, category or play style, then the community can do whatever they want to try to make it interesting and keep it viable long-term. If it is an enjoyable format and experience, I'm really looking forward to seeing how people like it after the tournament on November 5th. Yeah, I think it's going to be fun to watch. I wish, you know, New York wasn't so far away, and yeah. I might go check it out. But that's a bit of a stretch on the, you know, testing my wife's patience. It's quite a drive, uh, if you think about it, especially for, uh, for me in Texas and then for you. I mean, you're closer, but not by that much. Yeah. Another thing that's happening that is ongoing and going to be going through uh, at least this year and into next year a little bit is the plus one initiative and we're hoping to announce winners for that at the mr classic that happens in early 2023 but plus one initiative is you making it a priority to share the game of redemption with someone and if you share the game with them and you play a game just submit a picture of you and them after you've played a game and enter your name into a drawing for some pretty cool prizes that at some point we will actually announce those. And we won't just keep saying pretty cool prizes. We'll actually be able to tell you about those prizes. But the game, I, I was saying it every week. I can't. I guess I can't say I've been saying it every week when I haven't had an episode for two weeks. But the game is only going to grow if we push the game. It's a great game. It's a great potential ministry tool. But it only spread, gets spread if we're the ones spreading it, just like, you know, the actual gospel. So make sure you, you know, if you have an opportunity, you share the game. New starter decks coming. We've got GOC that you can buy into as like a single set and actually build viable and competitive decks. A lot of people have talked about the power level of GOC. I've seen that come up on Discord. And sure, the power level is pretty high on GOC compared to other sets, but that makes it easier for a new player to come in and invest in one set and be competitively viable. So there is a benefit to that. So plus one initiative, make sure you're, you're doing that. If you are sharing the game, mine and Brad's play group is going wonderful by wonderful. I mean, we're really teaching this one person that showed up. <laughs> um, it has been, it has been hard to get other interest, but we do have one person that has basically been there every week, and we have gone through the starter decks, the IJ starter decks, the new Israel's Deliverance starter decks that were um, pre-released at Nationals. You know, obviously they're not an official release, but we've been using those decks. And then we started building contender decks, and we've gone through a few contender decks. And so we're we're on a good path with the one individual if you got any ideas on how to get teenagers excited about redemption, you know, pass those along. But uh, we are still trying. We are still meeting. And it, it, we are planning on doing it at least through the end of October. So it's a great time to try to start up a play group and try to get interest in the game. But 
just make sure if you're like us and it is very slow moving, keep the faith and just keep doing it. Humble beginnings are, are a necessary step if you want to build an eventual strong play group. Most places, I would assume, are going to be similar to where it's going to start off slow. But you just got to stick with it and make sure that there's something for you to invite people to. So keep having the the play group and whatnot. That's kind of it's kind of where we're at with it mentally and I guess emotionally at this point because we are fully invested in it. Yeah, our my local church, um, the one that I attend, we have a lot of middle schoolers and high schoolers, and I've I've brought the game a couple of times to the youth group events, um, and they show passing interest and kind of in the same way that you'd be if like you know somebody had a bunch of pokemon cards like oh that's cool but you don't really have nobody's really latched on to wanting to play the game uh except for surprisingly some of the youth leaders so um i might teach one or two of them but the problem is finding the time because the one who is currently interested uh is the associate pastor and so his time is spent raising his kids and then um, sometimes preaching and then most of the time dealing with the kids of the church. And then the other guy, um, I don't think he has interest in playing. He just has a history of playing it when he was a kid, which I thought was kind of surprising. But um, he used to collect the cards when he was younger. Uh, Cool. Well, I guess cool in the sense that you have some passing interest, at least from some of the people that are involved with leadership within the youth group and maybe that can take root and get some kids interested um if you're able to pass pass that along and find time to teach him the game yeah that's that that is the hope um and i pray eventually that we'll have at least a group because really it's in the uh central texas area it's me uh unless you go down to san antonio then we got some of the people from um royal rangers and the the locals at Arena, as well as uh, Mr. Miyagi, as the community knows him. Um, and then you go up north, and they've got Mr. Schaefer, and everyone's favorite Marcus, as well as Jonathan Steckman, um, which is actually hosting a tournament today, um, which I thought was kind of nice. neat. I, I can't drive four hours to Dallas today, but... Uh, yeah, they're having a Steckman's having a tournament for some of his locals up in uh, Dallas Fort Worth area. That's that's cool to hear. I think it's it's pretty cool seeing there's there's been a lot of people that previously hosted tournaments that have come back and you know asked about hosting tournaments and a lot of new people um, with playgroups and and hosting tournaments and it's it's kind of it it almost feels like we've doubled in the amount of like active states that have state tournaments. Like this past season, I feel like there was a ton more state tournaments than there was the year before. And then the year before that. Um, so it, it seems like at least the tournament hosting and people willing to host tournaments seems to be growing healthily uh, in a healthy way to where at least there's an opportunity for new players to come on and have something to attend, which is a necessary part of any trading card game to flesh out and, and build roots and, and have people play the game and pick it up. So I think that's yeah. trending in the right direction. That's a good thing to see. If you don't, if you don't have places to play the game, um, you run into the issue of 
you know, people are not going to be able to come and new people are not going to have a place to come and see the game played and get involved with the community. The community is the bedrock of the game. You know, that you can have all of the best cards, mechanics, and rule sets that you want, but if nobody's playing your game, nobody's going to be interested in it. So as long as you're showing interest in some form and you have a active group that's willing to host tournaments and do locals, uh, your game should flourish, at least um, depending on how dedicated the, the fans of your game are. One other thing that came out in the couple of weeks that I was not active within the community or recording episodes was the fact that hidden on the new host guide was a new seasonal promo son of God that is actually on the new card face, which by new card face, I mean what the Israel's deliverance starter decks look like with the non-white border. So the colored border is carried all the way out and there is no line divided between the text box, the ability box, and the artwork picture box. And instead, there's a bubble added if there is a, an identifier. So this one is featuring artwork of, it looks like, Jesus outside the tomb. Possibly. Yeah, I think this the, the reference and the artwork are talking about Jesus when he comes out of the tomb. It also could throw you off because it looks like he's also ascending to heaven yeah. there. But anyway, it's pretty cool artwork. You have the people kind of uh, in awe or falling away as he's being lifted up, out of, potentially out of the tomb there. But just a standard negate and rescue a lost soul, seasonal promo, son of God. And this one has a Matthew 28, 5 through 6 reference. So it is another New Testament son of God uh, from the gospel, so you can target it if you have cards that search for a gospel card. This one does not have an identifier, though. Uh, retroactively, the um, Luke version, which was baby Jesus with Mary um, holding him, that one got the identifier of nativity. This one does not have an identifier of empty tomb because currently empty tomb is just an empty tomb hero versus empty tomb being... An identifier, um, I think, was kind of what Marcus was uh, trying to answer. Someone previously asked uh, something about it being empty tomb. So there is no identifiers on it, but it does look pretty cool. And it gives us another art option within the new card size, which not new format, but from INJ, um, when they stopped making INJ and they started making early church forward, the cards went on a slightly different card size, which obviously, Jared, you know about that because you've been trying to find inner sleeves that fit. <laughs> and you had a labor-intensive process trying to do that. But the new card size, and it's kind of like, it's pretty cool because now we have a foreign wives that's on that new card size. If you were lucky enough to get a scattered from Nationals two years ago, 2021, um, then you have a scattered that is on the new card size and it's it's cool to get these cards that are on the new card size so that you don't have those skinny cards that are slightly taller that just kind of mess it up when you're you're putting cards in sleeves because it really aggravates my ocd so it's nice to see different art options coming into that without you having to get a national promo and spend money for that what do you think about this son of god do you like it yeah i like the way that this one looks the color gradient on the back is quite nice 
Um, I I've always liked the the I guess regular text box to shaded uh, gradient that they have in the text box to differentiate between the verse and the special ability indicator. The art the artwork is nice. Um, I just think it's nice to have another I guess gospel son of God available because um, I think we really only have two. One of the new starters, which are not legal for play yet, and then the the nativity one, the manger promo that we got, uh, I think two years ago. Yeah, something like that. That sounds about right. I think it's really cool just having a variety of options for what everyone agrees is the strongest card in the game, and it's a card that's going to be in literally every deck that's ever built. So just spreading out the variety of artwork in each iteration of the game. So you had the original with the scrolls, and then you had the IJ card format design that changed the way that the cards looked on the card face. And now as we move into it, yet another card face upgrade, or update, rather, you know, or upgrade, you know, whatever. I think it looks better. It's an improvement. I uh, don't want to insinuate that everyone thinks it's an upgrade. Some people might not like it, but, you know, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. I think it looks far and away better overall, especially when you look at the actual cards. I think it looks really weird at first when you look at just the picture of the card because you're like, dude, this border is going to be, like, so, like, thick, and it's just going to look weird. But then when we got those cards at Nationals, they looked really good. Um so I think it, it makes you feel like they're going to look weird when you first look at the image. But getting cards and having a variety of Son of God artwork in the new card format with a new card face is kind of cool. Yeah, I like it. Um, when I Like you said, when I first saw it uh, and I saw the updated borders, I'm like, oh, no, those look so bad. It looks so terrible. And then I was regretting it because I'm like, oh, I don't want... I don't want them. I don't want them to have <laughs> this going forward. Uh, they just look so weird. I like the white border, but seeing it at nationals when I was looking at them at the on the tables while people were playing, you had to um, eat the crow, didn't you? Yeah, I was like, man, these actually look really good. Yeah, almost like Yu-Gi-Oh cards actually from a distance. So the first time that that I knew that these were going to be on moving forward was, I believe it was with Gabe on a podcast. And he, he mentioned that moving forward, or it might've been him and Chris when they were talking about the Israel's deliverance, you know, when the information got leaked about those from Rob that he had been play testing them or helping with play testing. Yeah. (sighs) I remember just thinking, oh, no, these look terrible, but I couldn't say it. Like, I couldn't openly say it because I was recording a podcast, and I didn't (laughs) want to be that guy that immediately, like, here's a change. Boom. Nah, man, this stinks. This this sucks. And I was like, all right, well, I'll just wait and see them. They're going to be at Nationals. Cool. I'm excited to see them. And I fully expected to be disappointed at Nationals, like, get them and – them everything that I thought that they would look like be what they looked like, but they look so much better. Like the, the border does not, it's not such a fat border and it's not, the picture doesn't look small compared to the overall card size, which is what my fear was is that like, you're going to have all this card and it's like all this wasted space on the side that you could have made this artwork bigger. Um, But that's not the case. So 
you know, that's that's kind of the history of my opinion on these cards. And uh, I'm glad that it I waited and saw them at Nationals, and they look great. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Having them in front of you completely changes your perspective. I think if you ever see something, and that's just a good rule of thumb to have in general, um, even when it's not pertaining to redemption, if you see something and you don't like it initially, you think it's, you think it's bad, don't, don't get outraged and make a snap decision. Wait until you actually see it in person or you take a little bit more time to think about it and you know you might grow on you you might end up liking it yeah that that is great advice for not just redemption not just card game changes but changes like at your job changes anywhere when someone announces it don't immediately shoot it down like give it a chance to breathe a little bit before you you go with your reaction I think that's just tempering your reaction to things is just kind of a sign of, of maturity as you as you move to a more open mind when it comes to, to changes and being adaptable to those changes. And I, I think in life, that's one of those traits that if you can if you can master that, that'll carry you a long way. Oh, yeah, for sure. I have not fully mastered said trait. Um, I am still working on it. I mean, I think it takes some time. Yeah. Like we just had the year in review, which was from, uh, I believe that's the first like mini series of, uh, episodes where they're all kind of following a theme that I've done with the podcast here. Um, so I don't know if you guys like that or not. If you do, you can let me know if you don't, you can let me know. And then I'll know whether or not we should do something like that in the future. But when we were talking about the reserve rule and how my immediate was like, I'm just going to, I'm going to get on a podcast. I'm going to just blow it up. I hate this rule. And then when we actually recorded the podcast, my thoughts had already changed. I was like, yeah, it's not that bad. But that was kind of, that was almost like my, my understanding of that rule and my thoughts about it changing more from being forced to wait to talk about it because the podcast wasn't up and running then and whatnot. So I might have made a more rash um, episode about that had the podcast already been established at that point. So, But I think I've gotten better as things have gone on with changes within the game because there's been a ton of changes in the last year. And oh, yeah. so I think the general consensus that I hope everyone got from that was that I think most of the changes have been warranted changes that have definitely improved the game. So... I guess we'll get ready to move into the main conversation here with Jared. And I know you guys are really excited about this episode because uh, I had a couple of people reach out and ask, was the episode still happening? And here it is, it's happening. But before we move into that, I would like to take a pause and have a word about our sponsors. Are you enjoying this episode of the podcast? If so, please consider supporting our sponsors by visiting their webpage at covenantgames.com. There you will find a ton of family-oriented gaming products, including but not limited to the Redemption Collectible Card Game. Add a threshing floor playmat to your cart today and represent your favorite podcast at your next tournament or casual meetup. All right, so as promised, we are here with Jared, and we are going to be talking about... um, the state of the game and kind of his thoughts on that because he's been one of the more outspoken people about 
the health of the game and its current state. So uh, not to put a lot of pressure on you, Jared, but there have been uh, a f- quite a few people reach out and ask about this episode if it's still happening. So glad that we are getting the episode in, but they're really expecting some gold from you. So no pressure. Oh, boy. <laughs> I guess first question would be, it seems from your the way that you talk about the game and how you compare it to other games that you have a pretty expansive background in games. So what is your background with games, specifically trading card games? Well, um, there is a pretty extensive list of games that I could talk about. So I'll start from the beginning, you know, just as the Bible does. I'll, I'll, I'll go back to the time where it all started. So in the beginning, Jared was a young child and his father bought him Pokemon cards from base set when that the came out. The Devil's Game. The Devil's Game. And Jared really enjoyed playing Pokemon, at least what he thought was playing Pokemon, because nobody played Pokemon properly when they were younger. So um, that was where it all started, I think. If I had to, if I had to think about that, then I and I ended up playing some Yu-Gi-Oh, even though I wasn't supposed to, because uh, I just like card games. The real devil's game. Yeah, um, I played some Chaotic in the interim between there. Some of the other smaller ga- card games that came out, like Bakugan, and um, I even played the Beyblade card game, which is kind of funny back in the day. Was was Bakugan did? So it the cards that actually came with that they did something. They did, yeah. So there was actually a, a trading card game attached to Bakugan. Okay, but nobody good. played it. I remember the little figures and you would like use a magnet to like release them, but some kids didn't know. Okay, I didn't know. And even my kid, my son, has some because it's still it still gets made or whatnot. And uh, every now and then you realize, oh, you're supposed to use a magnet with this. And it has that like light bulb moment to release the thing other than just beating it. Like there for a while, we were just throwing them on the floor. Oh, it opens if you throw it. <laughs> That's yeah. not how you're supposed to do it, though. No, no, they're not like that. They're not like, like not not pop rocks. You can't. Just... <laughs> uh, they're not firecrackers. You can't just throw them on the floor and expect them to explode. Um, but yeah, it was no, pretty I cool when they did though, like you throw it and it turns into a dragon and that's pretty cool. Oh, that's, that's wicked until it stops working. <laughs> yeah. But we had, um, I, I did, I did play Digimon too when I was younger. I just had a lot of, I had a lot of exposure very young. Um, and then when I was, I think around seven or eight, uh, I was introduced to Magic the Gathering, and this was back during the period of time when Shards of Alara came out. Um, now, that period to Innistrad for Magic the Gathering, I played very casually with my friend. We didn't really understand the game, but after when Innistrad actually came out, I started playing the game competitively, and I've essentially been collecting and playing card games competitively since. So, uh, rattling off a few, um, I did Star Wars Destiny competitively, Magic the Gathering competitively, Pokemon, Force of Will. I tried my hand at UFS, Universal Fighting System, but I wasn't very good at that when I was younger. Um, Flesh and Blood, Legends of the Five Rings, uh, 
we said Pokemon already. Um, what were some of the other ones? They've got Genesis Battle of Champions. That's out now. Um, I tried to get into MetaZoo. I just couldn't do it. It's not for me. Um, the new Digimon card game, which is actually very good. Um, and then some more um, that I could talk about. But I don't... They're not all coming off the, the top of my head. I, I just have... Oh, Keyforge. Keyforge is a big one that I forgot to mention. But I, I just have a big love for card games. Um, I like the way that they work. I've always liked games in general. And so anything that has a rule set that you can then apply and add skills and tactics and strategies to um, is something that I quite enjoy. So by association, I do enjoy sports. Um, I would not say I'm a typical American who very much so enjoys football because I'm Canadian and I prefer hockey. But hey, I like hockey too. Yeah, and I and I like both, but I don't like I don't like football enough to sit down and watch it on the weekends or something. If my if my dad has it on because he likes football, I'll, I'll come by and sit down and watch. Oh no, I'm I'm all about football, but I do I do have an appreciation for hockey, which is not typical among football fanatics. Yep. Yeah. No, it's it's a great game. We were we were, I had a, we were having a talk uh, talk about it this week, um, just because started getting some streams of, of hockey going on in the house. And that usually brings uh, my brother-in-law is here as, and I'm, I live with my parents. And so some, when that comes on, um, he's also Canadian. We, we usually sit down and, and talk hockey. So it's kind of a bonding moment for the family. So you guys like the, uh, what's the Canadian team? Uh, Maple Leafs. Is that, is that... We're, we're not that kind of Canadian. Uh, <laughs> we're from the West. So we prefer the Flames and like the Oilers and, you know. Oh, okay. The good teams. The, the Oilers is Edmonton? Edmonton, yeah. So my okay, that's where my yeah. brother-in-law's from and I'm from Calgary. So those are the Flames. So you like the cool Canadian teams. Exactly, the cool oh, ones. Okay. All right. So you really like the strategy behind trading card games and, and whatever and the fact that you can apply the rule set and – people approach the game slightly differently to, you know, try to be competitive within that space. Okay. So how does redemption uh, fit into that kind of expectation that you had from other trading card games, like the initial, okay, I'm trying redemption. This is how it plays compared to those. I guess redemption always gets compared against magic, but you've got a wealth of other games. So just against like that whole catalog of them, how does redemption stack up with that? So, um, I was a little obstinate starting off with, uh, redemption. Um, I had started playing it when I was introduced to it by Mr. Miyagi, but I didn't get really competitive into it. Um, and I'm not sure why the initial reason was for that, but as I started diving into it, I think beginning of this, the end of last year, beginning of this year during the holiday season, um, it's dense to say the least. I, I really enjoy reading rule books and learning games um, to understand them fundamentally. And if you've ever tried to pop open the reg and read that document, it uh, it's not innately clear. Um, so I'm very thankful that we have Marcus and the, the ruling question channel for the Discord 
because without that, I don't think I would have been able to grow nearly as fast as I did. But the skinny of it, um, realistically, when you're comparing Redemption to other games that I have played and some of the other games that I've seen and studied, it's vastly more complex just by thought line actions per turn, as well as interaction that your opponents can give, at least during the battle phase, in comparison to other games. The amount of actions that you can take in Redemption is crazy high. And so it uh, it creates a great deal of tactical strategy that can be put in play, but also a ton of different possibilities. There's, there's so many possibilities of things that you can do so many actions that you can take in a turn i think redemption by far is one of the most complex card games i think i've played um especially to learn it's definitely been one of the harder ones i guess that could also be seen as potential detriment to the game because it it does kind of make it harder for some players to latch on but for someone that has a background like an extensive background and catalog in trading card games does it does that just endear it more to you because of how complex it is and the fact that you have to work so hard to, you know, fully understand the gameplay? Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of elements that are endearing. Um, I think Redemption's uniqueness in their gameplay is is one thing that's endearing as well as the community, um, as well as the, I mean the thematic value of it, as well as the fact that it's a great ministry tool. All of these things combined make it uniquely special but there is there is some merit um actually there, there's quite a lot of merit to the how difficult it is as a card game um but it it can definitely be seen as as very daunting for somebody to get into right so one of the things that i always recommend to people um when they're starting out a game is to read the rule book um i would not recommend somebody go and read the rule book for redemption when they're starting out. Uh, that, that probably would take too long if you're talking about the reg. Now, the fourth edition rule book is not that long. So as a, as a getting started guide, that's probably fine. Okay. So what specific elements and uh, like whether it's deck building or actual gameplay, what are the specific elements of redemption that really uh, are unique to it versus other card games? And that you enjoy. So, there. That's that's a. There's a manifold answer to that. One one for sure is the um, the theme of redemption. What it stands for is another thing. They both kind of feed into each other um, because of the faith and because of the community that's built around that. Um, it makes it very special, and uh, it's very dear to my heart. The game. So I. That's one thing that I, I really do quite enjoy. The The other part, um, the deck building is so in-depth. Um, I don't think there is another game out right now where there is deeper deck building than in Redemption. Magic the Gathering might come close, but there's only so many things you can do because of the resource, resource curve. In Redemption, realistically, if you want to build something, you have the idea of how to do it and the strategic know-how of how to make that happen. You can pretty much put that strategy into anything. And the gameplay itself is also very unique. Redemption has one of the most unique win conditions, I think, out of any TCG that I've played. There's not a lot that use a point-based system 
that is found within the deck and has to be pretty much um, put out onto the table for you to win. That's that's not really found anywhere else. So those are those are some of the, the some of the elements just off the top of my head that I really really quite enjoy that are unique to Redemption. Yeah, the fact that the win condition, unless you're doing an alternate win condition like the cross or something, and playing for that, which goes back into how complex or how deep and complex, but how deep the deck building uh, strategies are, like if you're building toward the cross. But in a standard deck, the fact that the win condition is in the opponent's deck and it's an interaction-based thing, you have to, even though there's cards to reach in their deck and pull out lost souls for rescue, the fact that there's forced interaction, because in my very shallow experience with trading card games before Redemption, I played a little bit of... Yu-Gi-Oh! and that was it and since I've played Redemption I've also learned how to play Pokemon with my son but in Yu-Gi-Oh! there was this there was this thing at one point it was an OTK which was one turn kill basically you get beat in one turn because you just eradicate the opponent's life points and then it turned into FTK to where you could build a deck to where the opponent wouldn't even if you had the first attack then the opponent wouldn't even get the chance to have a turn to attack. And I think that redemption does not have issues like that, but there are several other issues that redemption does have because of its unique gameplay. Then you start leading into the fact that there's no cost for playing cards. Um, So then you get into probably a deeper wormhole of like trying to balance the game. So we don't have the issue of someone obliterating an opponent very first turn of the game, but there is a significant advantage for who goes first that leads to a higher than I guess preferred win percentage. And it's something that the community has been talking about. And I think it's safe to say that everyone in the community acknowledges that there is a big advantage to going first and trying to uh, find ways to balance that. And that's kind of why I wanted to have you on the podcast because you have a lot of great suggestions. The community usually takes your, your, ideas or whatnot and there's a conversation with them so how much of the game do you think benefits the player taking the first turn as just a baseline so how much advantage do you think that person gets um so i've spoken with a lot of people on this and i've had a lot of conversations revolving around this both in public and private um and i don't think anybody would argue that the person going first is at an advantage that's not that's not a contentious point what would like what you say what the what the actual question is is how much of an advantage is it and so that is a little bit harder to quantify we know that it is advantageous um it's just by how much and i would say it probably sways your win percentage maybe something like 33% going first because you have the opportunity to establish a strategy consistently. And, and this, is, this is something in Redemption because we don't have resources. We have a reversed resource curve um, that you can consistently pump out your resources onto the table, giving yourself multiple options, as well as setting up floodgates and counters to your opponent 
whilst they only have access to their hand, which means if they don't build their deck to counter you on turn zero um, or during your turn, they're not going to be able to do anything. And even if you do, and I know Chad's a huge advocate of this, there's only so many cards that interact at that step. And the chances of you pulling those cards, I think I ran the numbers on it, um, is only like three three out of the out of the four times are you gonna have maybe one of those cards show up maybe not even the right card and to have the perfect one for that situation the the chances of that are much much lower so if you have eight cards that interact with your opponent during their turn going first the chances of you pulling that card are so small in comparison we're talking less than 50%, depending on what card it is. If it's a specific card, if it's one card, you're, it's not a 1 in 50 chance because you have to calculate in Lost Souls. So it's something like a 1 in 42 or 1 in 43. And then on top of that, if you can add other ways of getting to it through your deck during the first turn. So if we're talking something like the Salty Lost Soul and you're using um, Escape, I think is the one that can grab Salty. If you're using escape well that doubles your chances of getting it but i mean a one in 21 chance of pulling salty on the first turn is not super advantageous now that's not taking into account starting hand um nor some of the other cards that you could have in it and there's definitely ways of increasing the amount of time that you or the amount the chances of you having that but your opponent is not limited to that eight card starting hand. They don't have to worry about that. If you're going first, you can take as many advantageous steps as you want to increase your chances of countering your the counterplay that your opponent has. So taking precautionary measures. If they have Salty, well, you have just as many chances as they do to pull your Son of God and then use it on their Salty Lossal. But it's more advantageous for you to do it. The opportunity... Um, the opportunity advantage of that is higher than your opponent's opportunity advantage. Them rescuing your lost soul during your turn isn't as strong as you rescuing their lost soul on their turn, depending on which soul it is. And for Salty, being able to do that on the first turn, being the first turn player, is very powerful. So there's a lot of there's a lot of back and forth to it. Um, I think if we look at the last tournament season. You can see the benefits of going first, practically go through your entire deck. Um, and in this current season, there it's still very much so a thing. Uh, if you want to take a take a look at anybody, look at John Early. Shout out to John Early and his very fun decks of um, you know pumping out a huge amount of card advantage. He loves setting up that Covenant of Death or the the cards that are like Covenant of Death, and then making his rescue attempts and making forcing his opponent to make that answer. Now being the second turn player, you don't only, you not only have to deal with his covenant of desk or death esque effects, his floodgates, and maybe some of the other things that he has his other negates and territory negates that he has, but you only have the eight cards now 11 that you've drawn to be able to deal with it. So, in my opinion, going first in Redemption is a lot more powerful 
um, than a lot of people in a lot of other games. Some other games, it's not really as strong. Uh, Flesh, Flesh and Blood is a good example. This is a game I've been diving into quite a lot, um, which is kind of funny because when playing Flesh and Blood, um, originally when I first got into it back when it was just coming out, I was like, oh, I'm not really into this game. This doesn't It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I'm not used to this kind of mechanic. And then I played Redemption, and I learned that uh, in the span of a year, a little bit more, and I went back to Flesh and Blood, and I'm like, man, this game's really easy. <laughs> it's a, it's a lot simpler than er, than than Redemption. That's I feel hilarious. like I can I can really relax while I'm playing this. I did that with Pokemon too, and and some Digimon, and I'm like, man, I enjoy this. This is a breath of fresh air. This is nice. Yeah. So when you talk about the benefits of going turn one, and you you talked about uh, John Early, shout out to him and his strategy of just massive card advantage. How much can I go through my deck to try to almost deck out turn one and then throw down these counters? And there was there was something that John said a while back, and I don't remember if he said it like directly to me or if it was in uh, one of the Discord channels, but he said uh, the reason that he was good uh, with his covenant with death type decks or whatnot was and his first turn mayhem and all of that was card advantage and then slam counters down and you know force your opponent to play the game at your pace he was like that's the best way to play the only problem now is that everyone knows that and so now everyone's playing that similar strategy and it really makes um a card when you start talking about all of the advantage that you can get and throw down those counters turn one being how strong that advantage is uh, not to go on a, a full rabbit hole tangent here but it really makes it feel like three nails is almost required in the same sense that falling away used to be to kind of mitigate some of that you know tempo advantage to where somebody gets up on you you can throw down falling away and kind of level out and catch up by a turn or whatnot. And it almost feels like with people going heavy on the card advantage, the big setup opening turn, that it's almost forcing us to play three nails as a way to like reset. Okay, now I can go turn one and do my things after I reset what you did. Do you feel like that? Or am, am I alone on that island? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I definitely feel that way. Um, there's a reason why I brought Rossetti to Nationals. And that was one of the reasons because circus style decks i knew that they were going to be there as well as widow and and disciple style decks and they benefit heavily by setting up early and creating an advantageous board state and if i can tear that down you know against opponents kind of like tyler or um even jeremy because jeremy was the original idea where i got he playing against his early iteration of circus was where i got the idea of being able to or to play Rossetti because what I figured out is if I go against an opponent who goes first and they have a circus um, or a widow style deck that runs counters, kind of like Tyler's Golden Cross setup, there's very little and very few things that can actually stop that. And the two of them are a new beginning and um, three nails. But if they have the cross up, you can't stop what they've set up with a new beginning. So you need three nails. And now that we've seen what the metagame looked like after Nationals, we have Phase 2 GOC. Um, I do I do believe and I do think it is you have to run 
through nails right now, which is a little bit sad to say, but it it is a pressure relief valve. I'm so happy that they made that. It's probably my favorite card from GOC just because um, it stops your opponent from being able to lock you out of the game. And we need cards to be able to do that. I, I personally think we need one or two more, maybe one that can replace a new beginning. Um, and then just an additional effect that does something similar because in my redemption decks, I like to have at least three effects that are similar that are doing something. Um, if, if I'm trying to build towards a strategy, I want at least three, three effects that can do that. So, yeah, I definitely get that. And, I think there's a fine line for them to walk if they were to create more of that type to where you don't want it to be too overbearing to where now you've swayed things in the favor of the reset player, but just to make that a viable strategy and whatnot. And um, I guess it's worth noting that you are talking now with the the podcast now has both players that played Rossetti at nationals uh, with the Patriarch style. I don't know if anyone else was on it, but, that is also what I played, but I played the wrong Melchizedek and did not have Soul Gen in my deck, so <laughs> I was oh, no, nowhere I, I near the, the top right, table. I played the right one. I, pl- I played the same one that you did, um, the one with the star. Yeah, well, I didn't have Soul Gen to go with with like replacing him and using yeah. that version, so I didn't have Soul Gen. So Soul Gen cost me every game that I lost except for one that I just flat out got beat 5-0 to a music oh, yeah. David heart after God demon deck. Um, yeah, but man, I, the whole, whole time I'm thinking if I had just added one other, one other soul gen piece and swapped out Melchizedek, I probably would have been good. I played two combo players and I beat both of our uh, widow combo players and I beat both of them. So that wasn't an issue. And just the soul gen really, I was hoping to luck into more soul gen off of the resets and it didn't work. Yeah. Yeah, it's difficult to hit the, the those are technically soul gens. So you've got you've got mayhem and you beginning in three woes or three nails in my main deck that are kind of my soul gen um cards. Technically they're technically soul gen. And then you've got Hopper, um, Covet Lost Soul. And I think there might be one more lost soul. I was running Lawless at a time, but I, I, I took it out for the Covet just to make Covet more um um I, I just the the possibility of getting Covet to go off was higher, and would, would yeah. always happen if I didn't have Wallace. So, uh, and then I ran Judah's intervention in the sideboard, just just in case, just in case. So you were more prepared than I was. Um, yes, Tyler actually. I think two different games at nationals. Tyler came around, and it was like, all right, the game's getting ready to end, uh, or the round, or whatever they've called time. They told us. How many, you know, did you go first? Or you get one more turn, that's it. And twice, I believe, Tyler came around and saw me go into a new beginning reset just to try to get souls on the board of the other player because I was locked in a tie or something like that. And both times I came up empty. Like having Son of God and Second Coming in hand and them not having souls and you having a new beginning and choosing to reset because it's your only chance to get to five, that's a bad spot to be in. Uh, yeah. I found myself there a couple of different times. So note to the beautiful people out there, add soul gen in your resetty decks. Yeah. And preferably, preferably um, s- some soul gen that doesn't search decks. 
you want something that allows you to just put it out there. Maybe something like a name and servant girl. Yeah. Or a harvest harvest also. Yep. That's yes, pretty good. Sir. So to get back on the main point here, uh, and in the, the Rossetti rabbit rabbit trail there, had to give shout out to, to the deck though. You know, <laughs> we got to find a way to keep Genesis alive somehow. Yeah. <laughs> so we acknowledge the advantage of the player that is going first. Um, and you've been, you know, one of the one of the ones starting a lot of conversations about ideas and ways and the role that the community plays in, you know, finding a way to balance out gameplay. How just strictly speaking, how important for the future of the game and the you know, the potential for the game to really open up to new players, how important do you think it is for us to get the advantage reeled in a bit and balance that first turn interaction? Oh, it's um, I wouldn't quite say it's paramount, but it's it's very important. Um, there's a reason why I think the new starter decks work so much better than the old ones. Uh, one of those being the fact that it allows for MPEs to exist less, and it also gives both players, I think, pretty equal standings on how to to win the game. So from what I played with the new starters, it's I really feel like the defense is strong enough to be able to counteract what my opponent can do on their first turn, but you're also not drawing 32 cards on your first turn. Now, when you move from starter decks to competitive play, especially if you're playing type one, even more so if you're playing type two, you've really got to watch like as a new player, you're going to be astounded by how many cards your opponent can fish out of their deck. And I mean, if you're trying to bring people into the game and show them how wonderful the game is, because it truly is wonderful. It's, uh, it's very evidently uh, a blessing that we even have the game as it is. Um, they're not going to think it's very healthy at all. I mean, <laughs> I came from, uh, a myriad of backgrounds of games, but I've never seen somebody play that well, that consistently being able to pull all of the cards out of their deck that they want in a single turn, unless they were playing some kind of really deep glass cannon combo from magic, um, which the issue with those is that, I mean, if you disrupt them at any point during their combo, they're toast and they pretty much concede where you're playing against somebody like in Yu-Gi-Oh and they're about to go off in their combo. And as long as you got the one hand trap, you can stop them and their game plans over. And they also can see in redemption. There's not as many, there's not as many safety valves like that. There's no, I wouldn't say that there is one specific point in a certain combo where you can just stop somebody and they're like, Oh no, I can't do anymore. At least not, consistently because i have disrupted a widow combo before it could be done or before it could be used and my opponent found a workaround on that same turn and continued to go off one of the reasons why that's so possible is because it's a resourceless game you know we have the inverted uh i keep talking about an inverted resource curve and essentially what that means is um in, in games like Magic and Pokemon, you have a uh, a pretty standard resource curve, 
and it goes up incrementally as you get more resources. So say your energy or your, your lands from magic. Um, as you get more lands, your power level gets exponentially higher um, in relation to the lands that you have. With Redemption, you start off pretty much at zero. Um, pretty much at zero. And then you go from zero to pretty much 100 in like two cards to the what your deck can possibly do. Because you need, as soon as you put a character out on the table, you can start playing your cards. And even some cards don't even require you to do that if you're talking about things like artifacts and dominance um, or sites. So it's almost always, your your deck can almost always function on 100% um, most of the time. And then it tapers off resource-wise over time, which is where you get the inversion of the, of the resource curve. Because as the game goes on, you have less and less resources. You know, if, if somebody's gone and comboed off and they've gone through their entire deck, put everything out on the field, and then now they're playing with the eight cards that they have in their hand, if you reset them with three nails or something, they're going to have significantly less, sometimes 20 to 30 cards less from their deck uh, or it putting being put back into their deck. They're not going to have that many cards. And so they, by that nature, have less resources to deal with, which means they have... Uh, their resource curve is much lower, which is one of the reasons why I like resets so much in this game. But the health of the game overall, um, it does, it really does need uh, to be reeled in, especially that turn one advantage, because all of those things have less of an impact if both players have access to most of their arsenal on the first on their first turns. Now, there's I, I've come up with a couple of ways of being able to do that. And mostly I just I just try to have conversation with everybody in the community about how we can do it um, or just to, to get people to start thinking about it so that we can try and fix it or at least realize the fact that it's something that we should address. Um, now, again, I could be completely wrong. I'm not I. I'm not trying to, to preach gospel here and say that that's exactly what needs to happen. But um, I think if we start talking about it as a community, we'll find a solution. And if that solution is not doing anything, then so be it. At least we discussed it. So, yeah. So let me ask you, and this is kind of <laughs> put you on the spot to uh, not throw shade at anybody or anything any one group of people, but that's kind of basically what this question is asking. Um, who do you think, or what do you think is more to blame for creating the imbalance that we currently have? The elders have done a fantastic job in the last year, trying to do things to curb that advantage with the reserve rule and with uh, randomizing who goes first, those things. And, I, I think all of those have helped, but do you think, what do you think is more to blame? Do you think it is the current rule set, the, the way that it's written and applied, the player base with their deck building tendencies or just player strategies or a combination thereof? What, what do you think is more to blame for the current imbalance? So I'll take the, I'll, I'll do a, I'll give you a political answer and then I'll give you a straight one. So, the 
the overall the imbalance power imbalance of the game i think is to blame of everybody it's i mean it's realistically everybody's issue um and we're all to blame for it not necessarily to say that anybody should be you know apologizing for it. that's not what i'm trying to say it's just the game in balance currently is both a mixture of cards uh the rules as well as the player base right because if you have the cards that are being printed that are above rate and too powerful, um, they won't break the game unless the people are playing them in a vacuum. They break the game, but if people aren't playing them, they're not going to break the game. And then um, if the rule sets enable them to work in the way that they're working, then that also feeds into it. Now, if I were to pinpoint one specifically that I think is the most to blame for creating imbalance, I would have to say it's it's the cards being printed. Um, if you've seen in the last few years, I mean, uh, Marcus and the other team has been doing a fantastic job with simplifying uh, the rule sets and making them easier for people to understand. And I think it's only going to get better over time. Maybe in the next five years, we'll really see some very streamlined rules. Um, perhaps the... Perhaps the reg will even get smaller, which would be absolutely awesome because I don't know if you've ever gone back and looked at the old first, second, third, um, and then 10th edition or 10th anniversary uh, rule book and then fourth reg and, and the order. But like the growth is exponential, almost double what it was. So you have like uh, originally it was something like 30 pages, 20 pages, something like that. And then it jumped uh, from in the first edition, then it jumped in the second edition to 60. And then in the third edition, it jumped from like 60 to something like, um, I think it was like a hundred, 120, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm jumping the gun. I think it was like 15, then 30, then 60. And then the reg is like 130 pages. So not even counting the order, which is technically a part of the reg, but, um, rule complexity has gone up as, the cards being printed have required for the rule book. So you can't really blame the rule set because all the rule set is doing is trying to give order to the cards that have been printed. And then I don't think you can truly blame players for deck building tendencies because in any card game and any competitive um atmosphere pretty much anything competitive right any any competitive sphere you're gonna have people playing and building the best things that are out there they're gonna find the strategy that is the most powerful they're gonna play towards it and and push into that direction now um there is biases and and, and especially meta biases that come with people. I think once people feel like they've found the best strategy, they tend to be pretty um, willing to sit within their comfort zone and be like, okay, this is the best strategy. I'm going to keep playing this. And for redemption, historically, that's been speed decks. Um, I think speed decks have pretty much uh, reigned supreme for the most part. Um, but that's the same as any other game. I mean, aggro has always been one of the most popular um strategies in any any card game um usually because it's it's simple to pilot it's fast simpler to pilot it's fast and it's hard to stop because it's because it's fast in redemption it's even more so because speed 
is outrageously fast, exponentially so compared to other games. And, um, you know, it, it the free resource system enables it so well. So if I were to blame anything particularly, it would be the cards because back in the day, back during first edition rulebook and the, the, uh, the first limited and unlimited sets, you only had, was it the six card types? You had evil dominance, good dominance, uh, evil and good enhancements, then evil and good characters. Well, as well as lost souls. So seven, technically there were seven card types. And then as the years went on, and you added dual to alignment. <laughs> yes, and dual alignment. And then we added the territory class symbol, which the jump, <laughs> the jump of complexity in the game, if you go back, the territory class symbol is a key indicator of complexity going up in the game. Like it's a it's a marker of where you could see exponential growth in complexity in the game. Yeah. So how much of that, uh, just to, just to kind of pull it back for a second, how much of that do you think can be lessened? So you talk about how much the rules and the cards that have come out have grown in complexity, but also at the top part of the draw to the game is how deep the strategy is in the game because of all of that. So do you think there's room to pull it back and still have that deep, strategy and deep you know potential of card interaction and player interaction throughout a game especially in the battle phase like we mentioned um do you think you can still have that while still pulling some of that back that power level and some of the rules oh 100 percent um redemption is and will always be one of the deepest tactical and strategic games on the market for trading card games. There's just, it's the system that it has, the wealth of cards and the way that the gameplay is will always enable that far above any other game. Um, and so even if we tone it down a fair bit, I, I think it's still a head or two up on in complexity above a, little, a few other, few other games. I mean, you'd have to, you'd have to do like a limit of one, rule like you could only play one card of each type in a turn to really tone it back that far but like even if you got rid of even if you got rid of the territory class cards from the game it is still one of the deepest strategic games out there um and in rotation especially because you don't have some of the broken interactions and attacks that they had in uh, classic to where you can attack and everything CBN and uh, your opponent can't do anything. Um, but uh, we've seen we've seen pretty pretty clearly that most of the game is decided now within the prep phases. So, yep, I will agree with that. Unless you know you bring in the card that we talked about before, resetting the game with three nails or something like that. I think from seeing the first two prep phases compared. Um, for each player, if you're just watching a game and maybe even from that first one, but then you want to wait and see like the response from the second player, if they're able to potentially reset or something like that, but you kind of get the, whoever, um, 
I guess I'll word it like this. When I first got into redemption, I went back and I read tons of articles on the game um, that I found on Land of Redemption and, you know, different things and thoughts about strategy within the game. One of the things I found was that beloved video of Jay Chambers preaching about card strategy that I, I believe you're also a fan of. But one of the articles I found on Land of Redemption specifically talked about what it was like, Know Your Role, I believe, is the title of the little series. And it's what role do you have? Are you the player that is in control? Are you the reactive player? So are you the player that's having to react to what's happening? And I think, I think from just looking at the card pool and how it evolved over time, I feel like you used to be able to flip that role a little bit easier now. And now it seems like that first prep phase is so strong and you can observe that watching a game as a bystander and just, kind of have a feel for how that game's going to play out because there's not it's not as easy to flip that role and go from being the reactive person or the person that's reacting to what's happening and then okay I just flipped the table and it's almost now it feels like you're forced to do that reset with three nails or something like that a new beginning type of thing just to be able to flip that role but definitely like the I I feel like part of it too is players because when, and I know that there's going to be some level of playing the best thing, whatever strategy comes out as best. Um, but I think the way that the game works is that the game moves a lot slower than other trading card games, I believe. And you obviously have more knowledge with other card games and you can either say that I'm in the right ballpark in that thought or not. But it seems like because you only have one set a year at max frequency or whatever, um, and it hasn't been a year the last few sets. Um, it's been every couple of years or whatnot. So the game doesn't change as quickly as other games. It's kind of a slow-moving game. So when something's really good, it can be really good for a long time. And it's like you talk about that comfort zone that players get into, and they hold true to that. It's like... Take, for example, uh, Jeremy's deck from this past season with Circus, using Numerous as the Stars. Numerous as the Stars was always a good card. It was always a good card, but it wasn't seeing that much play. Now, you're going to be hard-pressed to see decks at the competitive level that are not using it or trying to exploit Numerous as the Stars because it was shown how good it was, and now, because the game isn't you know, evolving enough to move past that being really good in the interim, apart from a ban or something like that on a card or a card interaction. It's like, we're going to have to see that for a long time now. And then the hand control, you know, I think Jaden kind of put it on the map with doing the impartial judgment when post exilics first came out and hand control has been Something that, I mean, obviously it's been in the game for a while, but now people have built entire decks around it. Now they're using the gray Pharisees and things that also get the benefit of, oh, this is the brigade I'm in already for Daenerys and all of that to where hand control is now a, a big part of all of these speed decks. So you speed out, you put counter down, but you're also manipulating your opponent's hand. It almost feels like there's a lot of decks that are just basically doing the same thing, just different potentially different ways of basically having the same end goal. Um, Obviously, we all have the same end goal to win the game by rescuing more souls than the opponent. But 
you get what I'm saying? To where it's like the the strategies of how to get there are almost becoming just layered and every deck's doing the same thing. Yeah. That's kind of what I feel like when I play different people. It's like, okay, so you're playing that card deck. Oh, I know exactly what you're doing. And here we go. You've got a different deck that's doing the same thing. Yeah. So as there's a lot of cannibalism um, of archetypes that come in place with that. And like you mentioned, the game, it is it has a slower release schedule than a lot of other games. Um, but that's, you know, that's just the reality of the game that we live in. We have to we have to accept that. But metas become. You, they usually get a little bit more flushed out. Um, or at least you'd think it would, but Redemption's, remember, Redemption's competitive metagame is not that big, right? Um, I would say there's maybe 50 people who comprise the very edge of competitive play. I mean, if, even if you just want to take Lackey Grand Prix as an example, there's maybe like 20 people there. And those 20 people are kind of like spearheading um, the metagame and what, what the meta will look like. And then once it's established for that format, I feel like that cannibalism that you said comes comes into play. People will take the strong strategies that people are talking about and all the things that people say are good and throw them into your deck. So like, for instance, we got Daenerys with Emperor Nero. You'd be hard-pressed to find a competitive deck that doesn't have that included. Or now it's Peter and Fordrock McCoin. I mean, the advantage that they give is massive for very little effort of putting putting them into your deck. And I think everybody everybody plays around in in that way. I mean, dominant um, dominant diversity between decks is so, I guess, minute. Right, it's usually so like non-existent, almost. <laughs> yeah, it's it's usually like one. It's like, oh wow, I'm so surprised that you're running this one different dominant than me. And it's it's crazy. It's crazy yeah. because in the last few sets, the dominants that have come out, there's a lot of good good dominants, and it's just, I mean, until and and that that's part of, and I acknowledge that. Like I'm, I'm a hundred percent on board. I understand the reasons that the game moves slower, and I also realize that we don't have as robust of a competitive community as other card games. So it it affects things and makes it, you know, helps it be that slow evolving meta game. But I feel like I just feel like there's a lot of. Uh, yes, it's cards that are coming out because, as you mentioned, Daenerys and Four Drop McCoy with the massive card advantage that you get at such an easy cost, especially when the characters that you can throw in. Uh, Emperor Nero is just a good rescue, or I'm sorry, a good block in any deck if it's a one off. Like you put him out there, you force them to burn a card to at least get through his protection, generally. And then you don't even have to play Gray the rest of the way, but you have Daenerys um, that gets you a basically a, a four card advantage from the one card. So it, it's, it's cards being printed, but it's also, I feel like there's a lot of creative space that the community does not, does not tap into. But I also think that might be because the community isn't large enough that there's enough players pushing the creative boundaries of it's, it's like, yeah, 
so Jeremy finally shared his Nationals deck or something like that. Some someone top level player. Well, now I can copy this and make a few changes for this next tournament season, and I can use his strategy from last year to now be really good this tournament season and beat everybody that I play in my local play group. And you know, I'll take this to Nationals and try it out. And now that deck's two years old and being ran by more people, and then it there's just not a lot of creative. Uh, diversity index when that's a viable option. So I think yep. it's kind of a, a balance game that we're not blaming anyone specifically, but I do think the community plays a role in that and us as deck builders, because if we don't tap into creative deck designs and we just find that comfort zone that you mentioned, or, you know, we're just, we choose to take a deck and play that deck versus like trying to make a deck strategy our own or taking an outlying deck strategy and just try to make it better, even though we know it's not the best strategy. Like people just take the best deck, put the best stuff in it, and then try to try to win. And it's almost like just reckless reckless speed because those are the top decks right now. Yeah. And that's I think one of the reasons why that exists and why it's so prevalent um is because it's the most efficient way to play at the highest level. Right. If you see what what is good in a meta and you see what's doing well, if you can take that, make it your own and then play along and and be in in the meta playing against other people competitively. And that's that's easy. That's a simple that's a simple solution. It's very efficient. It it makes for um, tackling tackling a, a metagame very simple. But the reverse of that is very difficult, which is which is what I tried to do, which is re, uh, reverse engineer the, the meta. That requires knowledge of the card pool, understanding of the rule set, and a fundamental understanding of the field of the people that you're playing against, as well as what their decks do, what their weak points are, how best to break those. And so if you can if you can if you have the time, because that's really what it is, if you have the time to be able to look at all of those different things that are going on and then adapt and build to counter that or to make a deck that is uniquely your own, um, that is both competitively viable and unique, um, then more power to you. But it's that's that's a really difficult thing to do just because it's such a massive time investment. And it's more difficult with something like Redemption because the the card pool is so deep, because it's so vast, because there's so many things that you can do in a turn, it's harder to be original and harder to be unique because you got to know a lot in order to do it versus something like, uh, I'll, I'll keep mentioning Flesh and Blood because it's uh, kind of the thing that's on the top of my mind. It's harder to be unique in Flesh and Blood because there's so few cards. I mean, there's only, there's only a few sets, only about five sets that are out. And so... Within those card pools, I mean, sure, you can play a different character. And decks decks are, um, I guess, separated by the character and class in which you play them. Sure, you can play a different character, but most of the characters have one or two play styles. And you can choose one or two of those play styles, but most of the decks are going to end up looking the same because there's really only one or two ways to play those heroes with those play styles, and there's really only one way to play those play styles correctly. Versus Redemption, where you can take practically any theme 
and apply almost any play style to it and make it functional, maybe not competitive, but if you really, really want something to be competitive, you can do a deep, deep dive into how to make that happen. And then pretty much, pretty much do it. I think Jaden is a great example of that. Jaden has such a vast understanding of the card pool and the rules that he can take any deck and, and pretty much parade it around to a victory uh, in some form, um, which is really entertaining to watch because it's, it's so impressive. Um, and it also is refreshing to see all that new content. I love how you say parade a deck around because like, I feel like sometimes Jaden's got this quiet, uh, you don't want to say it's a, a, a slight bit of like arrogance, but like the fact that I know at one point he took the, what was it like the 25th anniversary play mat that uh, your turn games had and he built a deck that included all of those cards and he played it in the online tournament and he won games and it's like at this point and then he had uh what was the other deck the the one where he took the lion prophet and converted him to rescue souls um, oh yeah i mean uh, like just at a certain point you feel like he's toying with people a little bit and that i mean evidenced by the fact that he shows up with not one of these aggro speed decks per se at nationals and, you know, proceeds to win type one this year. So there, I guess, I guess that that shows that there is still at least some validity to that. Uh, maybe not completely lacking, you know, speed cards, but finding that mid range or whatever. So moving on in the conversation here, as we talk about the advantage of going first and the the balance of the game, what do you think would be the perfect balance for the game of redemption with that opening turn, whether it's turn zero interaction into turn one and two, and what percentage do you think the player that gets to go first? So I'm going first. Do you think that should just be a 50, 50? Should it be a 60, 40? Uh, what is the, the perfect balance? Um, because I think, I think it's pretty far from 50, 50 right now, but, how close to two fifty fifty should we target to have that in an acceptable range? Well, ideally, ideally in any game, um, you want the playing field to be as level as possible, right? You don't want it to be decided by coin flips or dice rolls. Um, so fifty fifty is idyllic, uh, or idyllic, but that's not realistic. So even in chess, the advantages of going first something like a sixty forty. And I think in Redemption, even more so than other games, because it's a best of one format and it's not a best of three, we don't have as many chances to reduce the variance of somebody going first in a best of like like they they, they have in a best of three. And so we have to try to get that as close to a 50-50 as possible. Now, again, it's not reasonable to expect a 50-50 because that's idyllic, but I think something like a 60-40 is obtainable as long as we give the first-turn player enough of a handicap. Now, what that looks like, I'm not entirely certain, um, but one idea that I thought I thought of um, might be kind of neat to apply and, and to see if it would work is if the first-turn player had to skip their prep phase um, 
but they still had the opportunity to attack. And so I have heard the suggestion to make the first turn players skip their rescue. Um, and, you know, so they're skipping their draw and their rescue. Then, then the question becomes, man, do I really want to be the first turn player? Is that really what I want to do? I mean, I get all the opportunities I want to be able to set up, but do I want to miss out on the tempo that comes with a rescue going first? I feel like that might tip the scales too much and it might make it to be something more like a 40-60 going first. Now, there's an argument to be made that um, you know being able to set up on that first turn is stronger than being able to rescue a soul. And I think that's true for the most part, but I don't really want to feed into that because I think that's part of the health of the game. So if if you skip the prep phase, that might that might even the odds a little bit more. It might be closer to something like a 60-40 because they can't use their prep phase to set up, but they can still make the rescue. And then you have pretty much the eight cards in my hand going against the eight cards in my opponent's hand for their first turn. And then after, in my discard phase, I set up in my prep, or I set up in my in my territory. Then my opponent goes, and they set up. And then it's the cards that I was able to set up in my territory versus the cards my opponent was able to set up in their territory. And that's where the game really is. At least that's the state of it now. is Because it's really, it's really territories versus territories. Um, or effects versus effects, if you really want to break it down. Because the card effects that you put into your discard pile are also relevant. And they may not stick out in the territory. But it's usually the things that are in the territories that are being the most disruptive. Yeah. I think there's always this, like, it's almost like a system of checks and balances, per se, before you go into into battle. You're, like, checking, okay, your distress is on, so my Jesse's not, my Obed's not on because of your distressed. Well, now I'll woes your distress to turn those back on to then turn off something in your territory, like a territory class character. And there's all this, like, back and forth just checking what is negating what, before you go into battle phase. So it's like when you say that a lot of the actual game is territory versus territory, that's, that's absolutely true with the way the game is currently playing out. And I know that the, the overall big picture is to push us more towards battle phase interaction where both players are back and forth. I think, you know, if, if Brad was here, he'd, he'd remind everybody about how like annoying that I've been about and, you know, being a cynic about, did you go first? Well, then you won. Did you go first? Then you won. Because I really do think that the advantage is that strong for going first. And I don't think anything that has come out in the last couple of sets has made it. It hasn't taken away the advantage of going first. If anything, um, you've increased it with cards like Matthew, Daenerys, Four Drop McCoy, because you've added on the potential to get through more cards if you have that big prep phase in your first turn so skipping the prep phase um for your first turn that way you don't lose the tempo so you don't draw you don't get to set up you don't get to play an artifact so you're just forced to go into battle assuming you have a hero which would lead people to include more actual heroes that are solid rescue options that's a that's an interesting one have you have you tried that out at all or is it just you know a thought at this point it's a it's a theory crafted thought, but it's not without merit. Um, it's not without merit, or it's not like I haven't thought it through. Um, 
I have from the data that I've seen and and the games that I've played as well as people that I've talked to a lot of the strategies of going first right now revolve around even if you goldfish right anybody who goldfishes uh on something like lackey or even with physical cards you play for the first turn you're not playing to go second right you're playing to set up in the first turn for a strong rescue but there are hands and i have had this happen that are strong enough to be able to make a rescue without going first and so if you make it so that the ter- first turn player doesn't get the prep phase to be able to set up deck building will respond as you said to correct for this difference and so they will include start increasing the cards that they have for rescues chad's um salty deck is a perfect example of this right he doesn't need to set up with territory class cards he has characters that can make strong rescues on their own but that's a better place for the game to be because where is the most interaction found in the game it's found in the battle phase and so the the more and more that we can center interaction or center the time played in the battle phase the better because right now the needle is pushed into the prep phase all the time is spent you 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 probably spend five minutes shuffling your deck in in the in the prep phase if if we made people shuffle every time they searched but uh thankfully we don't do that because it would take forever so um at least if they're going to go back in if they if they're only searching for one thing of course shuffle but it takes a lot of time shuffling takes a lot of time and so does searching so yeah so that's that's one option uh or a thought that you've given to kind of the opening turn um but you've also been outspoken with some other ideas and things for the overall balance of the game and pushing more interaction into the battle phase or, you know, making sure there's more interaction throughout the course of the game so that one player's not locked out, like we mentioned before, or you have that potential negative play experience of watching the person on the other side of the table, like uh, Jeremy, uh, when I played him at the um, East Central Regional Tournament after we had played at a tournament uh, at – Southeast regionals two weeks prior and I gave him a pretty good run with a reset deck and I I went into the game thinking okay well he's gonna beat me but I should be able to hold hold the line a little bit no he got me from turn one and I sat there and watched him play his deck and it was over in 10 minutes 15 minutes but to keep interactions like that from happening and people having that experience you've had ideas on how to you know in prove the balance of a standard type one game so what are your favorite ideas that you've come up with or that you've talked with others and you know they've maybe told you about those um what's what's some of the best ideas um so from what i've heard feedback on a lot of people really enjoy my exhaust idea uh the idea that um for each territory class card you have to have a character that can be exhausted in order to play that and then that character can no longer either attack or play another territory class card the attack one i don't think people are um, as fond of but they like the idea of one character only being able to play a territory class card per turn and so that one's pretty popular um and i can understand why because it adds kind of like a pseudo cost system to the game um 
I, I, uh, I've also heard a lot of, and this one, this one rings, uh, especially true in my ear because I think just the way that people are, um, thinking about it is no changes at all. Some people, some people don't want any change to the game because they feel like we've gone through so many recently. And I think that point is justified, right? You shouldn't expect your players to adapt all the time, constantly to changes. But at the same time, you know, if something is wrong with the game, we should try to fix it. Now, does this mean that we need to fix it immediately? Maybe not so. We can take our time to test things, ask the community about feedback. But at some point in time, push come to shove, things are going to need to change. Just like bands um, and hopefully less so erratas, things need to happen in order for game state or games to be healthy, right? Nobody, I don't think anybody wanted Widow to stay around after the national tournament season. Uh, I think it's pretty justified that she left. But for the most part, um, change change is a good thing. It's kind of scary and it's hard to adapt to. But if it improves the quality of people's gameplay and the experience that they have playing the game, being able to fellowship with each other, I think it's for the better. Um, and I think we've seen those changes recently. I mean, John, you just went through a big series talking about all the changes that have happened recently in Redemption. Um, and all of them have been for the better. I mean, uh, rotation for me was such a godsend because coming into the game, trying to learn everything, I mean, it's like, oh, no, we've got different card sizes. We've got different um, card formats with text on the pictures. I don't even know what this card does. What what does it mean that it ignores my card? How how do I play with this thing? Why is Thaddeus so powerful? All of these all of these strange um, things that why 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 does uh, a new beginning the enhancement have so many erratas and which one which one is correct is this the correct version right of it? and and how do you stop auto to gideon please someone <laughs> tell me so i mean that put a lot of less stress on me coming into the game and it was one of the reasons why i was able to learn how to play competitively in a year so i think change is inevitable now, one of the ones, one of the suggestions that I've heard that has really struck me that I really like, because um, I have my own, I got that exhaust rule. I like the idea of skipping the prep phase. I, I have even suggested getting rid of the prep phase entirely, um, just because think about think about it this way: the pitchforks will come. I'm just warning they you, will 100 they will come. come. They will come 100. percent But think about it this way: if if you can't use your prep phase to set up for an attack it almost becomes kind of like Pokemon where I'll swing um, uh, and try to make a rescue attempt. You'll block. It'll, it'll succeed or it'll fail. And then during my discard phase, I'll do all the things that I'd usually do in my prep phase and that'll set up. And then it's like, okay, this is set up. Try to answer this. My opponent will go and then do their battle phase stuff. Then they'll go to their discard phase attempt to answer that um, territory either in the battle or during the discard phase and then set up something for their opponent and be like, okay, try to answer this. Now, I think that'd be kind of a fun format. That that one would need just as much testing as the exhaust idea. But the my favorite by far that I've heard, and this is a recent one, um, comes from 
our our very own Joe Schaefer. Um, so Schaefer Schaefer came to me with this idea, and I think he had the it was like an epiphany moment for him. Um, at least it was for me. He he was like, oh, I don't know if I really like this idea or not, but what if we did this? And I'm like, that is that is perfect. <laughs> that is that is the best solution I have ever heard. And with all of this like mask set up for the big reveal, we'll be right back in just a moment after this word from <laughs> It seems like you're setting up this big, like huge reveal. Just go ahead and tell us, Jared. Come on, man. Oh, I was ready for the advertisement break. Um, all right. So Schaefer came up with the idea that, you know, what if we had a round counter? Right. So you start the game. That's round one. And based upon that round counter. You can play. Say it's one territory class card per turn. Now, depending on what cards you can play, maybe it's only one card per turn or something outside of battle. But the idea is that kind of like Hearthstone, where Hearthstone has a resource system where you have gems and these ma- other mana crystals or whatever. And each turn you go up by one and one and one and one and one and one. But in redemption, we don't have resources. So you can't actually use a resource to do anything, but you can count the number of turns or the number of rounds that people have. And so if you make it so that the first turn or the first round, you can only play one territory class card. And then you move to battle and you can do whatever you want in battle because battle is, you know, it's battle. You can, you can go ahead and make a rescue attempt. Your opponent can block. They can do stuff. You can do stuff there. And in that, that's what redemption was made to be. That's, that was the original rule set, but then it goes to your opponent's turn and then it's still round one. They have an opportunity to play one card, a territory class card. Then they pass their turn, go to round two. Now you can play two territory class cards so i can go emmaus road to go ahead and grab uh i guess john the fisherman and then i activate my the new covenant and i grab emmaus road back and i go and get a battle winner or i go and get um a card that can grab gabriel or something some 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 powerful card with that then i've played two territory class cards that turn I go to my battle phase, play whatever I want in my battle phase, and so on and so forth. And it keeps going like that. And so what it does is it creates a resource curve for the game, which previously didn't have one, right? And the problem with having no resource curve, or at least an inverted one, is that the main strategy or pretty much the only strategy is speed. <laughs> That's the most viable strategy because you have all your resources available to you. You can go as fast as you want, but if you're limiting it, it gives time and it gives space for a mid range strategy to exist or a true control strategy to exist. We could, if we ever implemented this, we might possibly see an actual meta viable cross deck not to say that there isn't one now but it'd be even more viable than it is because it's playing for that late game strategy 
to where it can play all of its cards down, all of its territory class cards. Man, I I feel like Joe. <laughs> I don't know if I love this or if I hate it. Um, I do like when you when so when you when you said that you come back around and now you can do it and you gave the example of you can do Emmaus Road to John the Fisherman who's a good rescue uh, hero and then you can go to a battle winner. Okay, so you've used both yours in that scenario. You've used both of your territory class activations to go and find resources for a solid rescue attempt, thereby not using them to set up counters and counter like a minefield that your opponent's going to have to navigate through. So it's almost like it's forcing you to choose to control the state of the game or to try to push the tempo of the game to where it it feels like that would force a strategic decision by the player when it's their turn using their limited amount of activations. So that's, that's a pretty, that's, that's a pretty complex thing. That's not overly complicated. I think like, I understand how it would work. It's just now you start thinking about all of the, like the back end thoughts and, and deck building for that. And, it almost feels like it would open up the game a little bit uh, strategically because you would see more varied strategies instead of like I mentioned where everyone kind of finds that popular strategy at the moment, what's really strong, and then just kind of puts that into their deck. Yeah, yeah, the diversity of interaction would be be pretty crazy, I think, right? Because it's like you said, like I can't have all my I can't have all my eggs in one basket anymore. I can't control the game. Um, go really fast with my aggro speed strategy um, and have my super strong rescue all on the same turn, I have to choose. So I, am I gonna am I gonna be super defensive and and you know go to search for my defensive cards? Am I gonna be disruptive to use my actions to play things like the first sacrifice or the teaching in parables? Or am I going to go ahead and try to be fast and use my activation for something like Delivered so that I can get both my Denarius and my Fordrachma on the same turn so that I got this big grip of cards that I can go to battle with. But even if you have that big grip of cards, you can't play them in your territory, right? You don't have the ability to go and play all so your territory class let advancements. Me, let me ask you this. Are you limited in just your prep phase to where then you can play as many as you want in your discard phase? Or what's the what's the thing there? Because you mentioned I can use Delivered now and I can go so I can use my activations to get both four drop McCoin and that. And just realizing that you might end up with at some point if you're limited in your discard phase, which I, I guess I would potentially be okay with it maybe depending on because it's your strategy and how you chose to set yourself up if you set yourself up like this but going in for a rescue with Matthew and those draw cards could you is there a point in discard phase where you end up with a bunch of cards and so now you put all your characters down but you still have a bunch of stuff you can't play down to where you potentially have to discard resources yeah that would kind of suck wouldn't it it almost stop people from trying to go too quick so so the the limitation does carry over yeah yeah so i the way the way that i see it um the way that i would see it is that that is a hard per turn rule so that you would have one territory card on the first round that you can play 
or activate. And then you have two in the second round and then three on the third and so on and so forth. And that would create, you know, you can you can go fast if you really want to. You can play your Star of Bethlehem, Resurrection, Denarius, Four Drachma Coin, and get a full grip of 16 cards and make a rescue attempt. But then comes the end of your turn. If all those are enhancements, you're discarding half of your hand, right? So... I like the I like the direction that 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 brings. I like the idea that you can go as fast as you want and have all these options in your hand when you're trying to make a rescue, but then you have to pay the cost at the end of it. Yeah. So that if you were to implement that and test that, that would in essence create a stopgap for or a you know like a it would put a ceiling on how fast you can be because at a certain point you're going to get into where you maybe are too heavy on resources and have to get rid of something that you didn't use. You don't want to get to that point. So you have kind of a cap there. Also, you're lowering the speed of the game to where like a new player could keep up with card interactions a lot better. Like I, I, I think from a teaching standpoint and, you know, I'm pushing introducing the game to new players and things like if you were doing that and okay, now they've got one interaction that's not in battle that I have to worry about on their first turn and then we get into battle and this is things that i've been taught from the starter decks is limited uh prep phase and discard phase activations and things to where you talk about like when you go from starter decks to here's competitive game and it's like all of these cards and you have 12 cards left in your deck and i am still at 42 because i didn't have any souls come out on the opening hand and i've still got my eight cards and you're about to go into battle with 12 cards left in your deck or whatever. It's like, that's that's hard for a new player, but if you were to have this to where interactions are slowed down to a point to where it's easier to keep up with, and there's still strategy involved with it. I mean, that's that's pretty interesting that all of that comes from just this one thing. And I like that the number isn't arbitrary in, or can't be accused of being arbitrary. Like, why one? Well, it's because it's the first round of the game. Why two? Because it's the first or the second round of the game, three, so forth, so on. There's a reason why it is that, instead of just oh, right here, you can only activate this four times. I do think if we're talking about that and saying that you're going to implement that, how would that work with? Would you still have the four activation limit just on territory class cards as they're activated, or would you be able to put down a character, um, and the activations don't count? for this limit at all once they're established in territory. So like if you put Jonah down as your one activation, I can use Jonah up to the four activation limit. It's not because since I put him down, I don't get to use him because he only gets to activate once since that's an ongoing ability. It just sits there active. Correct. Well, yeah. Um, I feel like, I feel like it is just the one, um, I feel like the, the, the limit of four rule would still be in place just as a safety valve, right? Um, and it, it's possible that it could be removed, but because the game is free on resources, and this would have to be tested because we don't know the extent of how, or the ramifications of how exactly this system would function, which I'll call it the, the Schaefer solution right now. 
The Schaefer solution. All right. That's going to be a patented phrase. You must give Joe Schaefer at least one wooden nickel every time you say it. Exactly. If you can find a wooden nickel and then give it to Schaefer, props to you. Um, I'll send yeah. you a, a, a pie of some sort. I tell you what, Jombie could make them. Uh, the guy that does the wooden redemption tokens. Oh, um, cool. Zach. That, yeah, those things. Man, he sent me some. I bought a card from him, and he sent me some with those with that transaction and man i love them so just random maybe, shout out maybe he can make a redemption official round counter for the schaefer solution <laughs> that'd be cool but, but um yeah no it would have to be tested because there there are still ways of abusing limit of four or if, if limit of four isn't in place you could still abuse it in something like in battle because there you can still i think um Jaden gave a gave an example of this. He he essentially created an infinite combo. I think it was in classic, but during the battle phase where he gave his opponent's character infinite. Oh power. yeah, I remember that. <laughs> was he and then was, did a whole bunch of stuff? That was crazy. he playing? He was opponent. he actually playing Joe Schaefer when he did that? Yes. I think okay. He was. All right. Yep. I, I I thought I remembered that. So limit of four might still prove to be needed and necessary. Okay. Uh, and I hate to like force you into answering these questions about this, but you brought it up and I know a lot of times things sound really good in thought and then you actually go to do them and you're like, ah, but I mean, just think if the game is moving that slow and not that it would be that slow um, for the entirety of the game, obviously, Battle resources. I mean, Matthew's still going to be a hoss getting resources in battle if you didn't have all of the, you know, hand advantage or, you know, things for card advantage in your prep phase. Then he becomes a stronger rescue because he gets you those resources, those enhancements that you can play in battle from just himself going into battle. Mm -hmm. So the game would still have the potential to be quick, but it being slower at the beginning kind of gives life to the fact that you could drop down a character that's kind of just an afterthought, like Judas Iscariot. People just drop him down on top of what they're already doing because he's in the right brigades to play some cool stuff from GOC. He's also an evil character if you need him in a pinch. He gets to draw two if you're rescuing with him. And he sits back there and is a counter for your opponent to have to work through. So he's just a good add. But people just throw him in. But then you could actually give some thought to the fact that, okay, he could draw two as a rescue hero. You can drop him in your territory to be a counter to your opponent drawing early on in the game to where instead of him just being thrown in at the end of, like, I've done all this in territory, oh, here's a counter. Like, now he comes out earlier, and it's just the the way that the strategy could potentially open up I think is really cool, and it'd be interesting to see how the community responds to this. You know, I don't know how much it's been shared outside of the podcast. I haven't been involved, you know, in great detail with what's going on in the community or whatever, uh, the last couple of weeks because of my own situation. But, uh, it'd be nice to see how people respond to this and if they like it or they hate it or, you know, there's always going to be people on each side of the fence. And then, you know, some people that are just kind of in the middle, they're like, meh, I could, I could be okay with it. I could, you know, live without it. Um, but it'd be interesting to see the conversation that comes about it because I do think it's a very good theory craft if nothing else. Yeah. If so, if even if you don't like the idea, 
I think you have to admit, if you're being reasonable, that it has merit. There is something to it. It's not just something off the cuff, right? There, there is something to this. Like for one, to or to add on to it, right? It, it adds analytical data to the game because you can now track on what turns games were won, but it also creates space for additional strategies to be put in place. It creates greater value for characters like Judas because the opportunity value of Judas being out on turn one is now greatly increased because people have to pick and choose when to play their cards outside of battle. And so he might actually get increased value going forward because of how good he is. And thirdly, the game itself, I would argue gameplay might be slower, but overall pace could be faster because people have less options during their turn to play, right? You're not going to see somebody going to time in their prep phase to play down all their cards on the first round because they only got one choice for enhancements. Now, you can play Patmos and put down your Polycarp, use your Resurrection, play your crowd's choice, all these other things, but those are finite resources, right? You can build your deck in a way where you try to deck out on turn one without using enhancements. That's a, that's a thing that's possible, but you got to use your dominance and you got to use your artifacts for that. And you only have so many of those for activations and you have so many of those and you greatly reduce the overall power of your deck if you're using all your dominance on the first turn. So I think even if you don't like the idea, it has merit. Um, and at the very least, even if you do like it, it should be tested. So I'm, I'm actually really looking forward to testing it now. Um, and John, this is a, I wouldn't say it's quite exclusive because I knew about it. Um, and there might be one or two other people who knew about it other than Schaefer. But the Schaefer solution, for the most part, I believe is a podcast exclusive. <laughs> nice podcast is so so blessed with exclusive content even when you're not expecting it boom here comes a great idea that's exclusive people hearing about it through the podcast that's pretty cool let me let me ask you this uh before we before we wrap up with one final question i'll go out of order here on our little outline that i made um and ask you about your eye for an eye format because it it hasn't come up yet it didn't come up when you were talking about uh, solutions that are ideas that you've come up with or heard that you really like. I know you were doing some testing with that. How has testing gone with that? And is it something that you've just kind of moved away from at this point? So the eye for an eye format is, I think, something that I want to pursue personally um, as a solution. And I think there is merit to it. I much prefer the exhaust rule now that I've I've really flushed out the idea. And I have done testing for eye for an eye. The issue that I've run into is that it's so fundamentally different from the image that we have of redemption today. And it's even more different than it's been ever in the past. And so I don't want to take away from the heart of what redemption is. And so I've, I've kind of put it on the back burner for now, not to say that it's not going anywhere because I still think about the solution. But I have been taking the, the criticisms of people to heart and their ideas about um, 
you know, oh, we don't want to change the game too much or, or uh, I, I'm not I don't I'm not looking forward to there being another rule change. I don't want to have to learn to play the game differently. Or if there's a returning player, he might be confused by all the different rules. And eye for an eye changes a lot about how the game is fundamentally played. Even being a experienced player, if you'd play eye for an eye, the gameplay loop is completely different, right? It, it, there's so much in there to unpack strategy-wise that it's completely different versus something like an exhaust exhaust rule is it's different, but it's not fundamentally so. You just have to make sure that your deck is built properly to play the deck that you want. Um, in Eye for an Eye, completely new strategies exist that don't exist within the regular gameplay loop. And so I'm much more of an advocate of Schaefer's solution um, or uh, the exhaust rule right now, just because I think it's a little bit closer to what the game is uh, currently in its current state. And it's not as radical as something like Eye for an Eye. So as much as I loved the Eye for an Eye idea, and I think it's still a format that I'm going to keep um, testing and, and kind of flushing out on my own, I'm not, I'm not talking about it in a great extent right now just because um, I think there are better solutions that have been put forward, and I think they should be pursued or, um, I guess, tested first. Versus something as radical as I for an eye. Okay, that's that's a great answer for that. I would like to say that also, and I, I've talked about it quite a quite a few times on the podcast here that this community is very unique in gaming culture because everything. I don't want to say that no other game has the community has a a feel for their community like the game of redemption does, but people within the community can talk about the game uh, and, you know, offer criticisms of the current state of the game and all of that. But we're all just passionate about the game and working towards potential solutions. And I think that's one of the things that people really like about you since you've joined the community. Um, Cause I do think you are a, just from the fact that like this podcast episode was, put on hold for two weeks and the people that reached out to make sure that it was still happening with you you're a pretty popular guy whether you uh, are aware of it or not within the, the redemption community not that it's a vast community but i think you're you're genuinely well liked and part of that is because of how genuine you are when you say things like i'm putting eye for an eye on the back burner because i don't want to change what redemption is and the heart of the game and just the fact that people in the community that are, you are by far one of the most outspoken people about the fact that there potentially might need to be some changes to the current state of the game to balance it out for the health of the game. But then when you hear also on the same person having the thought that they want to make sure that the heart of the game stays intact and that the game isn't changed too much to get away from what it was intended to be and what we all love it being, I think it's just so unique to hear people be able to openly talk about the game. And I'm, I'm thoroughly glad that the podcast is here as a platform for people to come on and talk about the game. But even when you have strong opinions and thoughts about the game and, and no one's going to, or I won't say no one because I don't know how everyone's going to feel, but I feel like there shouldn't be anyone that takes offense to anything that you've said about the game because of the way that you say it and the way that you carry yourself with it. And I just, 
thought that I would acknowledge that and say that it's it's pretty cool to see and hear you say that about the fact that you want to make sure the game stays what it what it represents stays the same even though potentially it needs to change for the better at some point. Yeah, and I appreciate that. Thank you for um, bringing that up because I really it's it's really a reflection of the community, right? The community is so wholesome is a good word for it, but it is it is really unified, um, and it, you can tell that it's a part of the body of Christ because people in this community are so loving so willing to have conversations, build each other up, um, and, and speak about things that are, that need to be said. You know, if, if somebody has an issue in the community as it pertains to redemption or outside of it, we want to be a part of it. I mean, the prayer channel is, is a great reflection of this. We have people come in here, talk about things that have nothing to do with a card game and people are genuinely interested, wanting to help, and wanting to pray for those people because it matters to us. The community, it matters to the community. And that's such a blessing to have in a card game because this this game is such a big part of my life um, as well as card games are just because I, I it, is, it is a deep-seated, rooted passion that I believe the Lord has bestowed upon me because I've tried to drop card games in the past and he keeps bringing me back um specifically with redemption so it is truly a blessing to be able to have this community especially since everybody here is so supportive um and loving and i really feel like i can contribute in a positive way the way and in the ways that i have because of the backing that i do comparatively to some other communities where you know if you try to speak out about something they'll shut you down or um, you know, the people who will just rage quit, others who criticize openly other people and tear them down for the sake of doing so. That's that kind of toxicity doesn't exist in the redemption community and shouldn't. And I'm I'm so thankful that we have this space, even and the podcast to be able to talk about it because podcast the podcast does so much to unify the community and allow people a chance to be able to speak on the things um, they have to say. And I, I'm very thankful for you having me on, John. So I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. And the way that this is going, I would assume we're going to have to have you back on at a cert, uh, at some point in the future, uh, maybe after some testing has been done to this, but definitely the way that you, you describe the community there, knowing that I was away for two weeks basically and had several people reach out just to make sure that I was okay and things were going, going well and offering to pray for me. So definitely I feel like the, the strongest part of this game I still feel like is the community. And that's, that's nice to know that it's, it's not just an experience that I have because I'm plugged into certain people, but people that are in different locations have that same feeling because the community, it spreads throughout the community. It's not just in one area. This is how we are. And then in another area, it's just uniform across the community as a whole. So definitely, definitely enjoy the fact that if I was to introduce the game to someone, part of the thing that I can tell them is the player base is so cool and just such a welcoming community. And I mean, there's very little, if any, you know, of, of the, the expected community, um, negative 
aspects that other games have. And I'm glad for that, for redemption. 100%. I agree. But I guess we'll get ready to wrap up here. I'll ask you this one final question. Um, so we talked about, you know, some of the ideas and things that could potentially create a better balanced game state, especially in the type one world, which is generally where players are being introduced. Not that type two isn't important, but generally if we're going to have issues or, you know, getting people to stick with redemption, it's because they're coming in experiencing something negative with type one and not sticking around. So we want to make sure that that's a welcoming space. Do you think changes will come just organically, just naturally based on, you know, the current rules we have in place, the changes that have happened in the past year that, you know, we just got done reviewing here at the podcast, but uh, just letting those breathe a little bit more and people getting used to the game as it is now and doing nothing but just, you know, adapting with the game? Or do you think there will be a new change in rules, new new light shed on like card usage, card interactions, that type of thing, or the player base cranking up creativity as it comes to deck building. What do you think will be the eventual solution to balancing the game in type one? It is, it's going to come down to a lot of all of those things. Um, Over time, the game will find solutions to solving these issues, either through deck building and metagames or through card releases, which is, is kind of one of the biggest changes when it comes to metas. Um, the issue that comes with that is, like you said, people have tendencies to be able to, to be playing the same thing, which gives off the perception that there really is only one play to, one way to play. And it's hard for people to break that. But that's not to say that there's no truth to the words that they speak or the methods that they take and the strategies that they play. There is merit and truth to the things that they're doing. But that's because the alternative is sometimes harder. So I do think, I do think we'll see rule changes. Um, I do think we'll see as, as cards come out and as new interactions are introduced, even if they're not, I do believe we'll see rule changes. I do believe uh, we'll see new cards. We'll see people build new decks. That'll happen. Even if nothing changes, even if um, before new sets come out, um, no rules are changed. Uh, um we will see changes in the metagame, just just organically. It'll just happen, um, as it all happens with everything, right? Um, and so it will happen, but I don't think the solution to the health, specifically the health of the game, will be found without proactive changes. We need to, we need to actively be working towards fixing the game to get it to a state to where it's healthy enough that in the interims between times where changes need to, or actions need to be taken to change the way that the game is played are far and few between. Because that's that's when you know your game is healthy is when you have a metagame and a strategy and a community who is constantly finding new ways to play and interact with other decks. You don't have one deck that sits at the very pinnacle that's unbeatable by anything else. There's all kinds of different solutions and um, di- so many different ways to tackle it. And, you know, it's it becomes almost kind of like a big game of rock, paper, scissors where you have 
one deck that beats another and another deck that beats another and another deck that beats another. I don't think we're there yet, even with GOC phase two. I don't think we're at a healthy enough metagame to where in a year from now, um, we're going to require another ban, another rule change, um, or the assistance of new cards to come out to be able to solve what we have currently. Uh, I just don't think that that's, that's here yet. Um, and, uh, or at least I think that's going to continue to be a frequent problem, but I think if we change some stuff in the next year or two with the rule set, with the gateway that the game plays, maybe the the Schaefer solution is the, the right one. Um, then I think we'll see a much healthier game. One that is easier for people to learn, um, and retains more interest in play for people might make even deck building a little bit more exciting uh, and free for people, giving them a little bit more direction into where they want to build their decks. Because right now I feel uh, deck building can be a little bit nebulous and very challenging for new players. Uh, I, I, I can definitely see new players struggle tremendously with building their decks and where to even start, to be honest. Let me hit you with a follow-up question. I know I said that was going to be the last one, but uh, I don't think anyone's really complaining about getting these these great uh, responses from you. So let me ask you this. You had that video come out a while back about the role of the community with trying to help in you know, shaping the future of the game. So when you say that it's going to come from us being proactive and looking to you know, resolve the issues that we acknowledge the game has where there's an imbalance in the interaction between players, especially if you're not the player to go first and whatnot and making that health more healthy, especially as it relates to new players coming into the game. What do you, how would you say what the role of the community is going to be in that process as we work towards that, you know, perfect balance within the game? Um, I think, working towards it the best way that we can do it tackling it as a community even as an individual is to see an area that you think that the game has an issue or even even areas that you think are good right find find areas in the game that you um that you enjoy or you think might need a little bit of work and then you know think about them what what are what are some of the solutions bring it to the community go have a conversation about it with people you know do you think man i really think matthew the publican is too powerful of a card the reason why i think it is this this and this um but on the flip side i think abraham uh from loc uh, is is very balanced, and he's doing great things in the game, and I think more cards like him should come out. Well, now you've, you've brought up a problem, and what you can do is try to help the community. You've brought to light what you think the issue is, but now try to help give a solution to what it is. If you don't have a solution to what that problem could be, discuss with people about what it might be. Ask questions, ask, you know, how can we fix Matthew the Publican? What are some of the ways that we can make him less powerful? These are just examples. I'm not saying that this is the case. Um, if you really like Father Abraham, bring that up to the community. This is a good thing. Be like, say, I really like what Father Abraham is doing. I think he's awesome. He's really healthy for the game. He creates this really great 
play experience. Um, I don't feel like he's too broken. He's just the perfect power level. Uh, I want to see more like this. What do you guys think makes him such a good card? Why is he so balanced? All of these things together, it's it really comes to just community interaction and speaking with each other about things that you see. Three Nails is a perfect example of a card that has come out in the last year that has done nothing but good for the game. I think Three Nails is a wonderful card that does something that the game has needed for a long time and works to balance the game out. And why is that the case? Well, it it helps break up some of these really oppressive board states that have seemingly no counter except three nails. And so three nails gives us a good baseline of what good card design looks like. And so going forward, I want to see more cards like three nails. So I advocate very heavily for effects like three nails to be printed, not broken effects. I don't want the cards to be broken, but I want to see things that help the game going forward that are balanced. Now, one thing that I don't want to see going forward is more numerous as the stars effects. I I love, I really do like numerous as stars. I do like, um, is it, what's, what's the one? Uh, what's the one that combos with Widow? Is it Life in the Sun? Yep, I think it's Life, Life in, in the, the Sun. sun. Yeah, uh, I like Life in the Sun too. I think it's an awesome card. Draw three, bounce, bounce a character and draw three. That's awesome. Uh, it's a little bit too powerful though, so it's not really helping the metagame. Neither is numerous as the stars. It's a little bit above curve for what it should be doing. One for for seven is probably too good. So yeah. now that we've defined that, how can we fix it? And the same thing goes for rules um, and you know other, other facets of the game in the community. And as long as we're talking about it, I think we can find solutions and increase the health of the game. Yeah, so basically, if I read between the lines there and... That was a great, great response to that. But if you just read between the lines and make a quick assessment of that response is that we as a community can be willing, um, you know, I guess, um, sources of data for the elders and the people that are in charge of the game state. If we're talking about what we like, what we don't like, what we think is too strong, what we think, you know, doesn't have merit to actually see play because it's below the power level, things like that, just offering different tidbits of information so that they have more data when they go to create new cards, new sets, or to assess the state of the game. You know, there's actually data for them to go off of our responses from the community, basically just to give them more to go off of to where they're not guessing at the state of the game. Exactly. Yeah, that's 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 pretty close to the summarization of what I'm saying. Um, you can't don't expect the the others to be super people because they're not super people. They're just regular people like everyone else. They just have a large load on their shoulders when it comes to the game, designing it, managing it, and creating for the game. And so, anything that we can do to help them out and decrease their load is probably a good thing. Um, you know, we not we're we're not elders, but you know we're just as uh, we're we're all members of the community, just as much as they are. Um, and the more direction that they can, we can give them, and input and feedback, the better. Um, 
almost to be able to help them work on it because they're they're volunteering to help the game and there's no reason that anyone else can't volunteer to do so as well your your opinions are just as valuable as anyone else's as long as you present them in an a appropriate way that's reasonable and you have uh an explanation that you can give to why you believe that and have a conversation about it that's nothing but good data i mean every anything and everything that we can do to talk about the game and push it towards a healthier state is good um not all answers are going to be correct but at least once we know which ones are wrong and which ones are right we have a compass to point in the right direction yep that's very well said so all right you heard that community get to talking keep talking hopefully you guys are intrigued at least by the schaefer solution which thankfully you know after i was worried about what i was going to title this episode i want to thank you for answering the question for me on what to title this episode oh you're very welcome episode 44 the schaefer solution it's he's gonna love that a lot of times I end up with, uh, okay, I've got it all edited. What the heck do I name this thing? <laughs> so there you go. Definitely want to thank you for coming on and sharing some insights into your background with card games and also your acclimation to redemption. And then, you know, kind of where you are with the game right now, since you've been one of the, the main proponents of conversation within the community, you know, pushing us to talk about the current state of the game, which I think a lot of times, not just in our community, but with anything, it feels like if you're talking a lot about the state of something, then you're opposed to it currently to where it feels negative. But you've you've done you've had those conversations in such a way to where it doesn't feel negative. And I think, you know, that's back to just how respectful you've been with it. And I think that's part of the big reason that the community has gravitated towards you. So. Definitely glad to know that you're involved with the game and hopefully you're here for the long run. Yeah, I plan to be. I'm not going anywhere. Um, I think God put me here for a reason. I don't I don't mean that in the way that like you got God brought me in here to fix the game. That's not what I'm saying. Not the farthest from. I'm just I'm just thankful to be a part of the community. Um, and in any way that I can give back, uh, I I wanna do. And so that's that's why I make videos. Um, that's why I talk. That's why I discuss things. That's why I interact with the community, as well as just generally enjoying the community in the game. Because I do. I love I love redemption. I love the game. Um, I love the community. I love you know this podcast. Podcast. I love the elders. So I love I love everything to do with redemption. Redemption has been nothing but a blessing. So very well said. I I love all those things too. So. I guess we'll get ready to wrap up here. Is there anything you want to share with the people as we get ready to close? Um, no, I think that's it. Um, I'm just, you know, happy that I was able to come on here. I uh, hope you have me on here again sometime. Um, and please, you know, if you got questions about the Schaefer solution, just message uh, Joe Schaefer. Ask him all the questions all the time, 24-7. He, he definitely does not have a full-time job right now that, he's working on very heavily so no all that to say if you have anything that you want to talk about with the schaefer solution share it in the general um and then if it's really pressing and concerning you can ask schaefer or me but uh schaefer is super busy um he loves the game and he loves talking about it too but please please don't private message 
<laughs> 20 questions about the Schaefer solution uh, every day because that might be a little bit straining. But um, I'm so thankful that he came up with this solution. I was so surprised when this happened. Um, but yeah, no, I got nothing else to add other than, you know, don't don't bomb Schaefer with questions. <laughs> uh, do or don't. I mean, it would be funny, but then it would so probably lean toward don't, but <sighs> rather safe than be sorry. Funny. It would uh, be funny. It'd be hilarious. Anyway, I guess we'll get ready to wrap up here. Keep in mind that next week we will be having our sponsor for the podcast, the guy that's the man behind the web curtain of Covenant Games will be on with me and he will be doing a drawing to give away a box of GOC. And that is from the pre-registration drawing that was supposed to happen at nationals, but kind of got left out just because we were so busy with other things and just everything kind of compacted into those few days. It was one of the things that got left out. So they are planning on giving that away still. And he's going to pick the winner on the podcast next week. So it's kind of like semi live. Like I'm guessing he'll do it on the podcast, then you guys will find out later, but that's what you got to look forward to next week. And then in the future, I may, I have the elder's blessing at this point. I may try to reach out and do a episode with just brief five to 10 minute descriptions from each person that is creating a player card of what card they are creating. And as they've been submitted for play testing at this point, so that you have an idea of those. We will stay away from the ability because the ability is something that's being playtested and may change, but the character's enhancements, we know what's going to be created. It's just a matter of not knowing the ability, and then those players that got to create a card could give you the thought behind why they wanted to create something for this theme or this person wanted to be have this person in the game, that type of thing. thought that would be pretty cool. It's a lot of legwork to put all that together, so... Hopefully in the future we can make all that happen and bring that episode to you. But as far as this one, episode 44, we are going to be out the door. Peace. See ya. All right, guys, that's going to do it for this episode of the Threshing Floor Podcast. As always, want to thank you for tagging along. Want to thank Jared for coming on and sharing some of his background in card games and his transition to the game of redemption and also um, some of his thoughts about the current state of the game. Want to let you know that next week we will be having the sponsor of the podcast on, Mr. John Early himself from Covenant Games, and we will be doing a live drawing to give away a box of GOC that is going to be for the pre-reg people that pre-registered for nationals the drawing that was supposed to happen for that that didn't happen we're going to be doing that live on the podcast next week and hope to see you there peace